Welcome to another Third Flatiron science fiction podcast. Can you keep a secret? Today's story is about the secret history of Queen Elizabeth and Shakespeare. Forsooth, The Fairy's Bell, written by Bruce Golden, might have you believing in the wee folk. Bruce notes that he's been writing since age 18, making a living at journalism, magazines, radio, and TV, while honing his fiction skills along the way. Bruce's story first appeared in the anthology Hidden Histories. For more from Third Flatiron, check out our website at thirdflatiron.com and subscribe to our feed. You can support our podcasts at patreon.com slash thirdflatiron. And now, hearken ye well to the fairy's bell, read by Keely Root. The Fairy's Bell by Bruce Golden Of all the Queen's palaces, I always enjoyed Hampton Court the most. Its gardens, its tapestries, its sumptuous furnishings were among the finest I'd seen, and I'd visited countless castles and noble homes. As head of the royal household, I'd travelled the breadth of England with the Queen. Of course, just as I thought of the grandeur of Hampton, the wind reminded me of the single thing about the palace I did not care for, the foul smell wafting in from the Thames. I would have to remember to have the maidservants renew the pomanders in the royal residence. That was just one of my countless duties, which kept me on the go all the day and often well into the night. Nonetheless, I can't say my life was ever dull. The Queen had her ups and downs, and I had been there for most of them. I was on my way, now, from the kitchen, where I'd passed on Her Majesty's complaints, to her bedchamber, to see that all was as it should be. Normally, by that time of night, she'd be preparing for bed instead of dressing in her finest. This night, however, she was expecting a visitor, one she'd summoned. On my way to her bedchamber, I came upon the royal footman and asked, Is the queen dressed? He shrugged and replied, A ship is sooner rigged than good Queen Bess is made ready. I barely stifled a laugh. The image of a ship's ropes and sails did indeed remind me of the queen's bodice and petticoats and stomacher, with all of their corresponding laces and hooks. William Head, I scolded the footman with a smile. I can't believe you would say such a thing. He shrugged again and continued down the gallery hall. When I reached the bedchamber, the queen was fully attired and shooing her dressers from the room. She struggled beneath the restraint of her gown to take a deep breath and sighed. Sometimes, Dorothy, I wish I'd never become queen. Your Highness, how could you say such? I wasn't as surprised as I sounded. The queen had become more melancholy with age. "'Tis true. If not for a battle here, a marriage there, the fates might have conspired differently, the Tudors never would have come to power, and I would never have had to bear the burden. Your Majesty, that's like saying if the sun never set, the moon would never rise. Life turns upon the whims of fate and happenstance. Why would you wish not to be queen?' She adjusted her russet wig and replied, "'Tis not really a wish, just amusing.' I often wonder what it would have been like to have had a simple life with a loving husband and children, and... You've been with me for my entire reign, Dorothy, more than forty years now. You know what it has been like for me, balancing my stewardship of England, duty to my people, with my personal desires. I know at times it has not been serene for your majesty. You know, Dorothy, it could easily have been thee. You could have been queen instead of me. Do you ever think upon that? Me, Queen? Whatever do you mean, Your Majesty? Come, come, I know the lineages of everyone in court. 
I know thee are only a few generations removed from Edward the Fourth and Richard the Third on thy mother's side, and on thy father's you descend from the line of Edward the Third. You are a noblewoman, the direct descendant of kings, Dorothy Stafford. Your blood is as royal as mine. Had Providence woven a different tapestry, thee could easily have been queen instead of me. I've never considered such a thing, Your Majesty. Tis a preposterous idea. Her Highness laughed with gusto. Royalty is an incestuous business. Consider that the first wife of thy late husband was my own aunt, who, if rumors are true, had dalliances with my father before he even knew my mother. Your Majesty, said the royal footman, announcing his presence. Yes, what is it, William? Master Shakespeare has arrived in response to your summons. Good, good, said the Queen. Light the candles in Wolsey's old office and show Master Shakespeare in. I'll speak with him there. The footman hurried to do as commanded, and the Queen asked me, How do I look? There were no mirrors in any of the Queen's palaces. She had forbidden them for many years. You look radiant, Your Majesty, I said, though her skin seemed more pale with the passing of each day. Master Shakespeare and I are not to be disturbed, Dorothy, but stay close by that I may summon thee if need be. I understood her meaning and hurried straight to the alcove next to what had been Cardinal Wolsey's office when he was master of Hampton Court. From there I could both hear and, if necessary, observe the Queen and her guests. I was not an admirer of Shakespeare, as was the Queen. I thought his comedies to be crude and his tragedies often seditious and sacrilegious. But Her Majesty liked anyone who could make her laugh. Master Shakespeare, she said upon entering the room, how good of you to visit me. He doffed his cap and bowed as the Queen chose her favorite chair, one resplendent with red velvet and gold satin. I wish only my steed had the wings of Pegasus to convey me into your presence with even more alacrity, he replied, rising to his feet as the Queen directed him. Though he's still a relatively young man, the master playwright had begun to bald. His forehead was a dome of flesh not unlike a melon, and his hair lay to either side like a beagle's ears. He was not a particularly handsome fellow, but that wasn't why the queen valued him. I never got the chance to tell thee how much I enjoyed your most recent play, The Merry Wives of Windsor. I found its humor most appealing. Gracious praise indeed, your majesty. It was your command for me to reprise the character of Falstaff, which served as inspiration. You are my muse, always. I'm grateful it was to your liking. Indeed it was, and now I have a new task for thee. The playwright looked askance at the queen, as if her words were unexpected. I want thee to write a play for the Feast of Epiphany. Something light, joyful, a comedy. By the expression on his face, Master Shakespeare was not only caught off guard, but unenthusiastic about the prospect. Nevertheless, he responded affably. As you command, your majesty, I will be honored to create such for the noble Queen Elizabeth. I beg only one favor. What is that? queried the queen, suspicion in her voice. Could you speak with your master of revels, uh, Sir Edmund Tilney, and command him to cease censoring my plays? I only ask so that I may be allowed to write my finest creation for your majesty without outside influence. Of course, of course, said the queen, waving her hand as if it were a trifle. I'll command Sir Edmund to leave thee be. Your Majesty is most generous, he cleared his throat. Speaking of your celebrated generosity, I understand Edmund Spencer has been granted a royal pension for his poem, The Fairy Queen. May I suppose? Yes, yes, 
said the queen, waving her hand again, but more dismissively this time. You will be adequately compensated. Your majesty is as generous as she is beauteous, as wise as she is tolerant, as righteous as Master Shakespeare. Don't you think I know when I'm being flattered? No one in history, methinks, has likely been blandished more. The queen smiled slyly. But I interrupted. Do go on. Shakespeare returned her smile, rather impudently, I thought. It could have just been the candlelight. Shall I compare you to a summer's day? You are more lovely and more temperate. He stopped unexpectedly then, looked thoughtful, and reached into his doublet for a scroll of paper. He searched his costume elsewhere, but didn't find what he was looking for. A pen, a pen, a king's ransom for a pen. He looked as desperate as he sounded. The queen pointed at the desk, and the playwright hurried to it. Once he had secured the pen and dipped it in the ink pot, he wrote furiously. Forgive me, your majesty, but I must make note when an idea strikes. I understand. I myself can no longer trust importance to memory. She waited a moment while he wrote, then asked, Tell me, what kind of play do you think thee will write for the epiphany? The playwright thought for a moment, then replied, In my mind's eye I see a shipwreck, a love story complicated by a case of mistaken identity. Yes, that could work. But I need inspiration. Would your majesty grant me the honor of being my muse once again? Tell me of your loves. Inspire me. Her Highness rose from her chair, looking very serious. Her temper was legendary, and I thought for a moment she was about to reprimand the playwright for his brash familiarity. I was wrong. Off times, Master Shakespeare, I think love is merely a form of madness. I may be queen, but in that respect I am no different than any common washerwoman. I, too, have suffered from this malady of the heart. Do you know I have received more than a score of marriage proposals in my time? I doubt it not, your majesty. Yet most had nothing to do with love. Love is a much rarer beast, she said wistfully. My first and greatest love was the Earl of Leicester, Robert Dudley, my sweet Robin, whom I'd known since childhood. Though he had no royal blood, he might have become my king, except... except he was already married. When his wife was found dead, there were scandalous whispers of murder, murder that would free him to marry me and become king. They were untrue, of course, but I was forced to banish him from my court, as well as from my thoughts of marriage. A tragedy itself worthy of dramatization. Then there was Francois, my frog, the Duke of Alençon, brother to the King of France. He was so young, so short, and so ugly, but he made me laugh. He was ever so charming that when he wooed me I behaved like a moonstruck girl, though I was nearly twice his age. Love is indeed blind, said Shakespeare. That it is. But the Duke was Catholic, and my advisers, my people, didn't like the idea of a Catholic king, not after my sister Mary's bloody reign. I knew all about the Queen's romantic heartbreaks. I'd been there for each and every one. Yet I could not believe she was being so indiscreet as to relay them for the master playwright. I'm not certain she cared he was in the room. She was caught up in her reminiscences. Then there was... Sir Christopher Hatton, my dancing captain of the guard, and Sir Walter Raleigh, who wooed me while secretly marrying another. I threw him in prison for that. But you released him later, said Shakespeare. Yes, after he'd learned a lesson. What of the Earl of Essex? The Queen frowned at the mention of the name. I knew her wounds on that account were still raw. Robert Devereux was a disrespectful, vain young boy who titillated an old woman's heart. 
I spoiled him, always forgiving his trespasses, his disobedience, until he tried to foment rebellion. That I could not forgive. He is in prison, is he not? Yes, and there he'll rot until I decide to part him from his head. I could tell Master Shakespeare now regretted his query about the Queen's love life, for the mood had turned morose. The Queen, her ire sparked, turned on the playwright. What about thee, Master Shakespeare? Have you ever known true love? What is true love, Your Majesty? Can love be false, if tis truly love? If it be false, then it never was. But if thy heart says thou art in love, then it must be true. Your argument has merit, yet I am assured I will never know true love, said the Queen. Say not never, Your Majesty, not while your heart still pounds. You don't understand, Master Shakespeare. I was cursed as a young girl. Cursed? By whom? By what? By whom or what, indeed? The Queen resumed her seat and said to her guest, You have my permission to sit as well. The playwright chose the chair behind the desk, feathered pen still in hand, paper at the ready. He sporadically made notes as the Queen spoke. I spent much time alone as a young girl, but one night I was visited by what I thought was a spirit. At first he just blew out my candles and laughed, and oh, what a laugh it was, like ice crystals breaking off a fairy's bell. It was no spirit, no ghost that came to my room. I learned later he was an imp, a magical sprite. When I first heard the laugh, I called out, Who's there? Who is it that invades my bedchamber? A sweet but mocking voice replied, I am that merry wanderer of the night, called Robin Goodfellow. That's what he called himself at first. Though I was the Queen's closest confidant, she'd never told me the story of this Robin Goodfellow. I was at once both curious to hear more, and jealous she'd chosen to reveal such to a lowly playwright. When next he visited, and it was always at night, he not only blew out my candles, he made my bedclothes vanish. I berated him for it, but he only laughed that impish laugh of his. Over time, other things vanished. Sometimes I would hear the laugh, sometimes not. Sometimes, after the lights blew out, he would steal a kiss, only a peck upon my cheek, yet an affront all the same. Then one night, after the candles blew out, I saw him. The light of the full moon poured through the window next to which he stood. He was quite a sight, more gnome than sprite to my mind, no taller than a child of six, with the hindquarters of a goat, cloven hooves, and two tiny horns protruding above a baby face. I see thee, I told him. He only smiled a wicked smile and said, Because you've seen me, I must reveal my true name. Tis Puck who is thy knavish lad, thy midnight love. I was angry, annoyed with his mischief, so I said, What do you know of love, little hobgoblin? No one could ever love such as thee. You're too funny-looking. He looked at me with such hatred, I pulled my bedcovers up so that my eyes could barely see over them. He pointed a stubby little finger at me and said, Thou thinkst thee knows beauty, that thy vision sees with the clarity of nature and all its pultritudinous? What fools mortals be! I curse thee, Elizabeth Tudor, for all time. Thou will never know true love. Only the cold comfort of a scepter shall be thine. The queen finished her story and sighed longingly. So you see, Master Shakespeare, while I did not always believe it, I've known for some time that true love would never be mine. My sun will soon be setting, and the curse will be fulfilled. I watched for Shakespeare's reaction. He put down the pen, placed his scroll back inside his doublet, and rose from his chair. I think upon the truth of it, Your Majesty. You did find true love, 
You've sacrificed much for it over the years. Your true love was for England, the bright country of your birth, the nation that was left in your care. Your country, your people, that is what you've treasured most, and to your own self you have been true. You are a wise man, Master Playwright. I would hear more of thy wisdom, but the hour grows late. Then I will bid you adieu, your majesty, though parting is such sweet sorrow. The playwright bowed, doffed his cap, and backed out of the room, even though her highness hadn't given him leave. Well quit of him, I thought. It only served to stir the coals of unpleasant memories for the queen. I was about to hurry to her side, to console her as best I might, when I saw from my alcove peep each and every candle in the room go dark, as if a sudden gust had extinguished them. I moved to the hall outside the office and saw that even the lights there had gone out. Before I could rush to her side and relight the candles, I heard the queen say, Puck, is that thee? Then I heard something I will never forget, a laugh that reverberated through the room and out into the hall where I stood. It was more giggle than belly laugh, but it sounded indeed like crystals of ice breaking from a fairy's bell. Thanks for listening to this podcast from thirdflatiron.com. Original music by Disco Volante. Sound production was by Andrew Cairns.